a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right. Welcome to the show. I am so glad you could join me today. I'm going to make it worth your while because I have a widely varied amount of topics to to cover here. Some of them I hope will be more interesting. For instance, we're going to talk about the case against pessimism. I don't know why, but that one seemed especially apropos given the times that we live in. We're going to talk about how to hone our critical thinking skills. And I'm going to remind you that you have an opportunity, if you haven't done it already, to sign up for the uh, free man's perspective from Paul Rosenberg. He's actually doing a, I don't know how many months it's going to take. He'll, he'll do this week after week. He's doing a series of uh, how to recognize logical fallacies. This is to help you become a better thinker. It's not to tell you what to think, but to to better structure your thinking so that you know how to spot when someone is trying to uh, to back you into a corner rhetorically. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, how you don't have to be an economist to appreciate the remarkable free market and its ability to solve problems. We're also going to talk about why there's no such thing as a coercive monopoly in a free market. And Philip Magnus has a very solid critique of the sketchy claims of those who are calling for a mask mandate, because it really seems like the lockdowners are on the offensive right now. No matter how tyrannical the measures that are already in place or have been in place, they want more. And it appears they're going to be pushing for more. So we'll talk about why not everything that we're being told seems to add up. But I'm going to start with something here that I hope will, will light a little fire underneath you. And motivate you to take some simple steps to better your position. The title of this is The U.S. is Running Out of These Nine Foods Fast. And that's kind of an alarming title, I grant you. Robert Wheeler is the author. This is published on The Organic Prepper. But he talks about nine different types of food that are becoming in rather short supply. And I don't know if you're paying attention to this. I don't know if it matters to you. uh, I've spent some time with friends over the weekend. Uh, We talked a lot about food storage and about that kind of self-reliance. And it was it was very reassuring to find that there are a number of people who take this seriously. And, And I'm not talking about, you know, we've hoarded, you know, thousands of tons of grains and beans. It's just being able to take care of your needs without having to run for the store every time you run out of something it's it's a really remarkable quality and it brings peace of mind which is really the, for me that's that's the biggest reason of all why you should consider it robert wheeler says over the past several weeks he has written numerous articles on the state of the food supply chain and the coming food shortages he says from the time i began writing those articles to now pending food shortage claims have gone from dangerous conspiracy theories to mainstream news topics so while the government began the alleged pandemic stating that there was no disruption to the supply chain which was patently absurd now it's openly admitting there may be shortages of certain foods or supplies over the coming months in other words the concept of food shortages has gone from theoretical to real And as governments continue to use COVID as an excuse to enable their ulterior motives, the financial stability of many will become shakier. That's going to cause the consumer's habits to change. Shoppers will be less likely to buy luxury foods 
as a result of the change in these habits, the supply itself will drastically change. And in addition to all that, producers are going to have difficulty processing and packaging foods. So the food shortages that are now being openly discussed, even in, are being openly discussed even in mainstream circles. For instance, Carolyn Dimitri, associate professor of nutrition and food studies at New York University, says, quote, because agriculture is so labor dependent, if you end up having a huge outbreak during the planting season or the harvest season, and it's kind of hard to predict when that will happen, it will disrupt the ability of people to work either on the farm or in the processing facilities, and there will continually be problems. End quote. So here is a list of some of the items you may see less of in the coming months. And again, I can't emphasize this strongly enough. This is not to cause you to fear. I don't want you to panic. I don't want you to drop what you're doing and race out the door and, you know, burn rubber on your way to the grocery store to stock up. This is a suggestion that if you need these items, the time to get them is probably now. Don't procrastinate. OK, you, you may regret it if you put it off for too long. There is no cause for panic, but you will be seeing, at least according to uh, this is an according to an article published on Business Insider. Here are nine of the items which may be in short supply in the months ahead. Beef. Oh, oh, that makes me sad. But the National Cattlemen's Beef Association has stated that cattle ranchers face over 13 billion dollars in losses that will continue through 2021. The Food and Environment Reporting Network has claimed over 11,496 factory workers in the meatpacking industry and food plants have contracted COVID. Now, those claims are significant, not because of the virus itself, but because of the shutdowns and the strain that it puts on individual factories, consumers and industry as a whole. And it just so happens I was in the company of some very fine ranchers this weekend and uh, they were talking about this. It's it's a big deal. Also, pork. NPR has reported that a Smithfield pork processing plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, recently shut down after 300 employees tested positive for COVID. Now, that facility did reopen, but other facilities are at risk of experiencing the same thing. And keep in mind that the factory supplies between 4 and 5% of the U.S. pork supply. That one factory. Chicken may also be in short supply. Chicken plants are in danger due to the close quarters of the facilities. Whole deli sections in general are in danger because they typically need more employees and preparation in store. Also, imported foods. Many countries report, or rather that export commodities, are worried about food security. In response, now these countries are restricting exports of certain commodities to ensure that they have enough available in their own country. Highly perishable foods. Now, this is one you want to think about. As the food supply begins to show signs of weakening, consumers are likely to pass over foods with a short shelf life in favor of those that will more easily store. Lockdowns and shutdowns will likely create the same reaction. In this article, uh, one of the individuals here is quoted as saying, in terms of what we see consumers buying more of, we see things they can store for a long time. For example, they prefer to buy apples because they last longer in the refrigerator than broccoli or things that are very perishable. So think about what happens when the tide begins to turn and consumers start buying more storable goods. How long do you think those storable goods are going to last on the shelves? What will the next empty shelf syndrome be? Next on the list is fancy perishables and berries. 
The shift from buying fancy foods to basics has already started. Instead of buying more expensive fruits, consumers are buying basic, cheaper fruits like bananas and oranges. With consumers being thrifty with their food budgets by not buying expensive products, the supply chain will be further affected. And those less expensive items will eventually become hard to get as well. Now, lettuce. There's already a lettuce shortage going on right now due to extreme heat, fires, and a virus attacking lettuce plants in California. Lettuce is currently in short supply with major chains like Wendy's already limiting the vegetable on their sandwiches. And then there are seasonable, seasonable fruits and vegetables. According to one source, these items are already experiencing a change in supply. We are headed into the U.S. domestic production season. We tend to supply most of the produce until the early winter. So this person says, I don't anticipate seeing a huge effect at the grocery store until we have a change in season. Boy, did we get a change in season this weekend. By the way, this uh, source also said that the labor shortage in other countries and the slowdown in the supply chain would result in spoiled produce before reaching the United States. So, what do you take away from that? Is it time to run around with our hands in the air screaming in panic? No, (laughs) it's not. But, according to Robert Wheeler, he says food shortage is no longer a conspiracy theory. These experts are advising us to take action now and keep in mind that we might be facing another round of lockdowns, which will strain the supply chain even further. And he has here a very handy list of what to buy to prepare for a lockdown, what to buy when the things you want are out of stock, nine things to buy every time you go to the store. But he warns, while things are, uh, while there's still some time to prepare, things are unfolding quickly. We watched a very similar scenario unfold in Venezuela. So let that be a cautionary tale and purchase while you can. After that, focus on what you can produce or acquire locally. The global supply chain is no longer a reliable source of food. Now, again, this is not with the intention of making you feel panicked or scared that, oh, my goodness, you know, we're all doomed. Just understand that uh, the, the consequences of everything that has happened so far this year have a tendency to cascade. That derecho storm that hit uh, Iowa a couple of months back, that took a lot of crops out of commission, too. Plan ahead. You'll be fine. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I want you to log on to staplesmortgage.com. And if you are looking to get pre-qualified so you can go home shopping or maybe you just want to refinance your existing mortgage, talk to my friend John Staples. He is the man. He will get it done. He and his wife, Heather, are, are sim- simply the greatest team out there in getting you the financing you need. So uh, staplesmortgage.com. Remember, that's the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, active in 23 different states. They can help you. All right. Before we move on to our next topic, which will be uh, making a solid case against pessimism. Actually, I think Rob is going to make a case against pessimism. You told me you had some good news for us, Rob. Yes. Uh, well, a, a suggestion. 
Okay. You know, you're talking, you're talking about the food shortages and stuff, and, you know, that, that all might be true. It might come to play. It's hard to say. But I guess people should start, instead of preparing and stocking up, prepare in a different way. Start learning how to go to a farm without going to the grocery store, shooting a cow in the head, and being able to butcher it and pack it <laughs> and put it in the freezer. That's, that's, that'll be your best defense on this whole problem that you're talking about. Learn how to do a pig, a goat, um, a chicken, and so on and so forth. Yeah. That's, that's, that's called a skill set that you have under your belt that if times ever come to that, you're set. You know, you can go out to the local farms out here. You can look on the local things here, KSL. I mean, you can go buy anything from a goat to a sheep to a pig to a cow. All over, from Idaho to Montana, southern Utah, Arizona. So the farms are there. You just get get the government out of the picture with the all the inspections and all that stuff and be able to go there, have the facilities at your home to be able to do it. Now, see, I agree with the idea that maybe all of that regulation isn't really necessary, but I'm also going to temper that by saying it's a good idea to know what you're doing or to, to have the tools on hand. Case in point. So, uh, you know, I know I know of some friends who thought, hey, well, you know, we can butcher our own cow just as well right here in our shop. And they did it. They pulled it off. They're, they're very innovative, you know, capable people. But all the stuff that, uh, all the blood and guts and stuff for the, the drained out of that cow, I mean, they trucked off whatever they could that was solid. But uh, there's a distinct smell of dead cow that lingers well, because they didn't have, you know, the, the proper drainage and way to hose it down and, and what. I'm sorry for anybody who's eating lunch if I'm grossing you out. My point is, um, you know, it's good to know what you're doing. You don't need government to do that for you, but, but know so you don't get yourself in over your head. Well, like, like I said before, you need to prepare. You know, you want to get hooked up with some farmers and ranchers that are out there where you can go out there and on their property, pop the thing in the head. Have them raise it up on a tractor for you, gut it there, skin it. You know, you don't even have to skin it. Just have a pickup truck. Just drain it. Drain the animal there, throw it in the back of the truck. But you got to do that when the weather's nice, like this, like the weather we're having now. Mm -hmm. That's the time when you want to do it. You don't want to do it in July. Right, right. Oh, trust me. the, The first time I helped butcher a pig was in weather just like this cold with a freezing north wind and and it was uh, it was kind of a miserable experience but it was also a really good learning experience but we also found yeah. out very quickly there were some places where we were over our heads now here's the bright side the friend who i was helping had some uh, neighbors he actually they were he had some uh, i i think they were native mexican neighbors who they knew what to do with every single part of that pig and I mean to tell you, they wasted absolutely nothing. They came over and helped. Once we had got about as far as we could go, and we're going, okay, what do we do from here? These guys stepped in and showed us, here's how it's done. And it was fascinating to watch. Well, the pig, pig's a little different than the cow. The pig... Yeah, by a few hundred pounds. But the meat on a pig is much more usable throughout the whole body, the carcass of the animal versus the cow. You know, there's, you know, pork... No matter how you slice it, fries up in the in the in the in the skillet, just wonderful. You know, cow's not the same way. So, that, that you, and and the trick is to prepare yourself beforehand. Yeah. Know what to do and actually do it. Go out there and and spend the time to do it. And 
then you'll know how to do it. It's it's a great. It's it's kind of like you know a, a skill set that's under your belt where you are self reliant. I completely agree, Rob. Thank you. And it's it's a great skill to have. Hunters already know something about this because. Maybe they've had the experience of, you know, shooting a deer or an elk, and they know what it takes to, to gut and, and quarter an animal and, you know, to butcher it. And, and I admire those who do it. I will tell you, though, there, there are a lot of people who aren't cut out for this. And, and sadly, that's, that's kind of a reflection of where we are as a society. Why will it so easy to just go down to Costco and, you know, it's right there on a little styrofoam tray all wrapped up, you know, with plastic wrap and vacuum sealed. And, you know, you don't even have to know one cut from the other. Oh, I want this. I want that. And you've got all these choices. I think some people may get used to eating a little bit less meat in their diets as, as meat becomes harder to get. I mean, do we do we remember just a few months ago, um, it wasn't uncommon to see signs at the grocery store saying we limit our customers to two items of, you know, beef, pork or chicken. They didn't want you coming in there and filling a shopping cart full and, and stocking up so you could get maybe two at a time. I just wonder if we're going to see that or maybe something a little bit steeper in the time ahead. And by the way, don't forget about, uh, you know, green foods and, and, and living vegetables and things like that, raw stuff that you can eat. This is a time for everybody to get a little bit better informed. And as Rob pointed out, gain those skill sets necessary, not just to feed yourself, but would you be able to cook, to can? Would you be able to, to mend your own clothing if it came to that? I know it sounds like this romantic little house on the prairie, you know, kind of existence, but I'm thinking the people who take the time to learn those skills are never going to regret that they can draw upon them as needed. Do you know how to wrench on your own car? Can you fix your own plumbing, your own electricity? By the way, I'm looking at all these and checking off. Nope. Nope. Don't have a clue on most of them. I can tell good stories, though. (laughs) Fat lot of good. That's going to do me. Let's talk about the case for optimism. Well, how about the case against pessimism? This is from George F. Smith. And he says, there's a lot of woe is us going on based on the alleged omnipotence of evil and the propagandized status status of most Americans. Even Wall Street is expecting a blue wave in November, we're told, as the votes of 538 individuals called electors will officially determine which party occupies the White House. Now, though electors pledge to support a specific presidential or vice presidential candidate, faithless electors have turned up 165 times in American history, most recently in 2016. You remember that election, don't you? Now, a faithless elector is one who breaks his pledge. This is according to Wikipedia. In 2016, a movement dubbed the Hamilton Electors, co-founded by Michael Baca of Colorado and Brett Chiafalo of, of Washington, attempted to find 37 Republican electors willing to vote for a different Republican in an effort to deny Donald Trump a majority in the Electoral College and force a contingent election in the House of Representatives. Of the 10 members who attempted to break their pledge, three of these votes were invalidated under the faithless elector laws of their respective states, and the elector either subsequently voted for the pledged candidate or was replaced by someone who did. 2016 was the first election in over 100 years in which multiple electors worked to alter the result of the election. Electors were subjected to public pressure, including death threats. End quote. So what does that all mean? Well, with the vitriol against Trump at least as high now as it was then, a corrupt electoral college may a college vote rather may be Democratic plan B for evicting him. 
And in this case, George F. Smith says, I think most people sense that something corrupt is in the works, whether it's the college or something else. And they're not wrong, but he says it's not new, nor is it a case of black versus white. It's bipartisan. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments, but I know it sounds like, well, this this was supposed to be the case against pessimism, Brian. Now, this is just making me more pessimistic. Hang on. Hang on. The payoff is coming, and I promise you will feel better after you hear what George Smith has to say. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, where were we? Oh, yes, the case against pessimism. This hasn't exactly been one of those years where those who are trying to overcome pessimism are, you know, getting a fair break, right? Uh, I can't wait to see what 2021 brings. Maybe we'll look on back on 2020 with fondness. I oh, remember how easy life was then. Nonetheless, I'm sharing with you an article. This is from uh, George F. Smith, The Case Against Pessimism. And he points out that, you know, as, as crazy as things are right now, and the, the possibility of maybe even the Electoral College having some kind of hanky-panky that uh, upsets the uh, results of the election, he says, this is nothing new. This is not a case of black versus white. It's not a, not a matter of, uh, you know, bi- it, it's a bipartisan effort, he says. He says, the state has convinced its subjects through theft, through ta- that theft through taxation and inflation is necessary for the operation of government. The wave, if it's blue, will seize more of their wealth and distribute it in such a way that it appears only the fat cats are being robbed while the rest are being fed, clothed, educated, and everything else that people used to work for. Thanks to modern monetary theory, or MMT, the sky is now the legitimate limit for government spending, and the public loves it. The public loves free money, has always loved free money, and eagerly awaits the steady flow of more free money. If they understood it better, they would love the Fed, the government-licensed counterfeiter, the creator of free money. They especially love free money at the expense of the fat cats. Now, clearly, since Trump and Pelosi both agree on the necessity of free money, MMT is not unique to the blue wave. Neither red nor blue need fear voter rejection for supporting it. Quite the contrary. Now, that's not to say there won't be serious repercussions, though. He says, try as they might, politicians and their homebred economists will never triumph over reality. So if it's not money, why are so many people afraid of what lies ahead? He says, the coming nightmare is one in which the friends of the street thugs will be calling the shots from atop the pyramid of power. Law and order will be in the hands of those who despise it. It will be open season on deplorables for the next four years, after which they will exist as an endangered species. The blue leader, whoever that turns out to be, will look far left to assign key administrative posts with the caveat that the military remain untouchable. Following the Keynesian prescription for economic calamity, they'll need the war machine ready for a major confrontation when the free money stops buying things and the media are urging people to demand someone who talks funny to blame. As the military has no trouble finding boogeymen to justify its budget, so public health officials will keep the public half-faced with corona enemies. Suppression of rebuttals on social media will accelerate. Even some non-traditional culture will be wiped out, one possibility being the recently surging homeschool movement. An obedient citizen is a state-educated citizen. 
can't have the deplorables teaching their kids, which they'll try to do anyway. Thus, can't have deplorables. Now, he says, such is the blob rolling our way. But remember this. We've been through worse. Think about it. He asks, should we lose any sleep over this? No. This country has been through much worse. Not us personally, but Americans during the Civil War and the two world wars. For those of us who need briefing on the Civil War, see Thomas DiLorenzo's excellent work. One result of Lincoln's war was the death of federalism. The states became second-class members of the great unity called the United States, not these United States. Later, Woodrow Wilson proved to be an effective con man by running on the slogan, he kept us out of the war in 1916, and then after being reelected, pleaded for Congress to send American boys overseas to murder and be murdered so Morgan's investments wouldn't go sour. Preceding the armistice of November 11th, 1918, the influenza pandemic arrived in April that killed more people than the war between 20 and 40 million people. Other estimates are higher. Unlike today's Corona scare, the flu took its heaviest toll on the young. The death rate for 15 to 34 year olds of influenza and pneumonia were 20 times higher in 1918 than in previous years. People were struck with the illness on the street and died rapid deaths. One anecdote shared of 1918 was of four women playing bridge together late into the night. Overnight, three of the women died from influenza. Others told stories of people on their way to work suddenly developing the flu and dying within hours. And and for the survivors, the pain was only the beginning. First, the crash of 1929 that the Fed was created to avoid, but in fact caused. Then Hoover's meddling. Then FDR's New Deal created the dark decade of the 30s, followed by the inferno of another world war, heir to the first one, and much worse in terms of casualties and destruction. From World War II emerged the National Security Act that created the National Security State, a hallmark of totalitarian regimes found right here in free America. And we were soon off on another war, this one cold, though interrupted by hot ones in Korea and Vietnam. After all that, and much more, 9-11, the Bush lies justifying foreign invasions, the Great Recession. By the way, there's a great video linked to, to that one. We're still standing. So George Smith is saying, unlike Americans during the regimes of Lincoln, Wilson, FDR, and others, people today have the exponentially increasing power of information technology working for them. They can swallow the propaganda of the media and political hacks, or they can search and find other information outlets like the one you're listening to at this moment. Nor are they passive receivers of information. They can post their thoughts and feelings in a blog or video and help shape a narrative that fits with reality. People the world over are far less hopeless today in the onslaught of propaganda, and the result is a chipping away of state legitimacy. Undermining state legitimacy boosts liberty, a condition we cannot live without. Labeling views that oppose the state MSM narrative as conspiracy theories has become laughable. It's the state and its partners that are conspiring against the rest of us, the latest evidence being the blown-up corona pandemic. The state, in short, is killing us. But if the state is a killer, what do we do for government? Ah, here's the big question. Look around, he says. We've had it for a long time. It's called the free market. If you need help understanding it, well, he says, read my latest book or let Libby and Justin explain it to you in a 10-minute video. Again, this is George F. Smith, author of The Jolly Roger Dollar, An Introduction to Monetary Piracy, Eyes of Fire, Thomas Paine and the American Revolution, and The Flight of the Barbarous Relic.
a novel about a renegade Fed chairman. He's got a way of saying stuff. I kind of like uh, I kind of like how he puts it. Maybe consider uh, checking that out for yourself. By the way, as far as bolstering your thinking skills, can I share with you some thoughts here from Paul Rosenberg? If you haven't subscribed to his free man's perspective, just give him your email. Let him put this in your inbox a couple of times a week. You'll get to emails and they are so worthwhile. This is addressing a fallacy either or. And he says, before we begin covering fallacies, we should be clear on what the word means. A fallacy is a deceptive statement. It is something that is false, but is made to appear true. In other words, it's a trick of words and emotions used to make people believe something that isn't actually so. But that doesn't mean that everyone using a fallacy is trying to hurt you. In most cases, they're doing it ignorantly because they were deceived by the trick earlier. So what they're really doing is passing on the mistake. So what we, while we want to notice deceptions or fallacies that are thrown at us, Paul Rosenberg says we should remember that most of the people using them aren't personally malicious. They're acting out a malicious script that was started by others. Now, the damage to you is the same, but their personal guilt is less. Now, he says, let's move on to our first fallacy, the either or fallacy, also called the excluded middle bifurcation, the false dilemma and even other names. This is how it operates. A speaker makes an impassioned argument leading to an either-or choice, either option A or option B. Almost always, they'll apply pressure for you to pick one or the other immediately. That is, two alternative statements are presented as the only possible options. In reality, though, many more possibilities exist. Paul Rosenberg says, I ran into this trick many years ago listening to someone proposing a new environmental law because a factory was dumping poison into a river used by several communities, or so they claimed. The speaker went through a list of horrible things that were happening or might happen to people living along the river, especially to the children. He went on to explain that millions of concerned people had vehemently condemned this and concluded his argument with a choice. Either you support our new law or you are supporting the abuse being done by the evil factory, abuse that has been universally condemned. Now, the argument was fallacious, of course, but nearly everyone in the audience went along with it. Here's why the argument was fallacious, because there were other options that existed. The law was certainly not the only law that could be written. A team of law students could probably come up with a dozen alternate versions in a day or two. The people along the river could bring lawsuits against the factory. If the claim of poisoning the river was true, all of these people could legitimately claim that they were being poisoned. Legal systems already in place were specifically designed to deal with such issues. Also, if the people along the river wanted to be a bit feisty, they could bring water from the river, hand it to the factory owners, and insist they drink it. He says, I wouldn't suggest going much farther than this, but it would certainly make their concerns clear. So then, many other options existed for this problem, not just the speaker's law or poison in the baby cereal. The either-or fallacy, then, involves a false, deceptive, and manipulative choice. And when we return the other side of these messages, we're going to talk about how the trick works. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. 
Hey, I want to take a moment here to mention uh, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. I know I was talking about, you know, food items that might be in short supply. If you're someone who is concerned about making sure your grocery dollar stretches as far as possible, you really should take the time if you are in or around the Salt Lake City area and stop into Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. Paul buys his food from different food wholesalers and then passes them along at incredible savings to you. Now, it could be restaurant supply stuff. It could be, um, you know, cheeses, meats, fresh produce. It varies from time to time, but I'm telling you, he has an incredible variety of food. It's a legit warehouse. This is not a big, bright box store. It's a legit warehouse. But the money you save will make it so worth your while. And if you are looking to stock your freezer for the winter, particularly if you're looking for beef, if you're looking for pork, looking for chicken, this is the way to do it. They accept major credit cards. They accept, actually, I think they accept all the credit cards now. They accept EBT cards. Everything sold comes with a 100% money back guarantee. And you can go to Facebook, punch in Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. Nikki's, N I C K E Y S. Just punch that in, search them up. You'll find the directions right there in their Facebook profile. Go check them out for yourself and stretch that grocery dollar as far as you need to. And do it soon. Preferably before the election. Okay. So let's go back to uh, the the fallacy being explained here by Paul Rosenberg, the either or fallacy. He says, here's how the trick works. Remember, he was talking about, uh, you know, well, there's poison being dumped in the river and the only thing we can do is pass this law or we just let this company keep passing, you know, put dumping poison into the river. So here he's, he's explaining how this trick worked, why so many people in the audience went along with what this uh, this person pushing the law was saying. He said the claim of poison was made rather quickly. It may have been true, but the speaker didn't spend any time proving it. Rather, he used it to stir up emotions and then moved along. That is crucial to success when manipulating people. The flow of emotions is key precisely because emotions displace careful thinking. He described the effects of the po- on the poison in vivid images chosen for their emotional impact. And he particularly used children because nearly all humans have a strong instinct, instinct rather to protect babies and small children. The speaker claimed that the crime, poison in the river, had been strongly condemned by large numbers of people and powerful organizations. This, strange though it may sound, was a threat and a strong one. What the speaker was implying and saying without actually saying it was this. If you don't agree with me, all those people and powerful organizations will hate you and are likely to hurt you. And finally, with his emotional pressures at their peak, he presented his false choice. Support this law or be a monster. Now, Paul Rosenberg points out, choose now is used to cement you to the choice before the manipulation wears off. As it would if you as it would once you had time to think about it. If you say yes, however, you'll tend to stick with it, even defend it, because anything else would involve calling yourself a sucker. Now, he says, I think you can see why the trick worked so well. Emotional reactions shove reason, balance, and perspective aside. In simple terms, we can describe this as turning off our thinking circuits and using only our reactive circuits. But believe it or not, it still gets worse. First, if others in the audience start screaming, yes, support the law, the conformity pressures go sky high. And you should be aware that serious manipulators will plant friends in the crowd to do precisely this. Why? Because it works. Second, humans have an innate tendency to see things in a binary way. 
We see this very clearly in word association tests and games where the fastest and most common answers tend to go like this. Hot, cold. Happy, sad. Hard, soft. Left, right. Wet, dry. Apparently, this is primitive brain circuitry we inherited, but in any event, dropping to hot, cold, happy, sad, and so on are the easiest things for our brains to do, and they involve almost no purposeful thought. That makes them perfect for emotional manipulation. So here's what you keep in mind. He says, Simone Weil once said, conscience is deceived by the social. Now, Paul Rosenberg says that's clearly true, but perhaps more to the point, conscience and, and reason are intimidated by the social. And the important thing about that is you can feel when it happens. When the peddler of emotional manipulation does his or her work, you can feel the change in your mental state. You feel less certain of yourself, more afraid, and suddenly joining with the crowd feels like a safe and desirable thing to do. This is the moment you must learn to notice. When you feel these things, he says, you must pull yourself away. I recommend that you physically step away if you can. But certainly you must pull away mentally. And at first this can be challenging. But he also says the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Once you step away and, and thoughts start running through the center of your mind instead of being displaced, you should be able to find the flaw in the argument easily enough. But the crazy thing about manipulation is that once you pull your mind out of the emotional flow, the tricks they play are so stupid, so transparent, that it seems crazy for people to be suckered by them. The real lesson here, aside from having this fallacy pointed out to you, is to step away from confusion and self-doubt. But he says we'll be talking more about that as we proceed. Now, I'm just going to pose a rhetorical question to you, but to think about, was that not helpful? Does that not give you some, some ammunition from which you can stand on your own two feet and not just go with the flow because that's easier and I don't have to feel awkward? Just a thought. Okay, two quick things. Uh, I'm going to ask you to please go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These will be the show notes for October 26th. And I want you to look up the essay that I've shared with you there from Per Byland on why there's no such thing as a coercive monopoly in a free market. Look, you don't have to be working on a degree in economics to appreciate this. But when you hear people talk about, well, you know, the reason we need regulation is so people don't build a monopoly in the mar market. Per Byland makes an absolutely ironclad case that the only way that you can really build a true coercive monopoly is with the regulation of government. Keep it out. Let the market freely work on voluntary cooperation. Nobody's going to have that coercive monopoly. Powerful, powerful stuff. All right. couple quick excerpts here from Philip W. Magnus. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. The sketchy claims of the case for a mask mandate. He says new coronavirus cases are spiking again as we head into the colder months. And while this pattern likely affects the long anticipated seasonality of the disease, the lockdown aligned American news media is currently peddling a different narrative. Not enough Americans are doing their duty to defeat the virus by wearing masks. We're constantly hectored. And to this end, the Washington Post ran a flashy visual display purporting to show that high mask use states are faring better than the rest, conveniently omitting mention that many of those same states were the hardest hit during the first wave last spring, albeit at a, at a time when mask use was less common. 
Anthony Fauci, yes, the same Anthony Fauci who publicly discouraged mask use last March and then later acknowledged he was lying at the time for political reasons, is now claiming that only a national mask-wearing mandate will save us from the months ahead. Further stoking the flames, the doomsayer modelers of the University of Washington's IHME team have even published an updated forecast warning of an additional 500,000 deaths unless we all mask up. Now, there's a fundamental problem, however, with the media's current mask frenzy. The American public has already adopted mask wearing at an extraordinarily high rate. In fact, we hit almost 80% mask use back in July, according to a survey tracker of behavioral changes in response to the pandemic. Furthermore, the United States has consistently hovered in the 80% mask compliance territory ever since. And by the way, he's got the charts and graphs which bear this out. Now, to give you a sense of perspective... The 80% mask use threshold is also where Thailand, Vietnam, and Taiwan have hovered since the beginning of the pandemic. Now, these three Asian countries have thus far weathered the COVID-19 outbreak with only modest case counts, an outcome that is often attributed to their widespread adoption of masks after similar experiences in past regional epidemics like SARS. It took the U.S. from March until mid-July to catch up with these countries. Again, in part due to the misinformation given by Dr. Fauci and other public health officials early in the pandemic. But now we've maintained near parity with these supposed masking success stories for the last three months. So how does masking in the United States stack up against other parts of the world? Well, you would not believe it based on uh, the prevailing media narrative that depicts American individualism as an obstacle to wider mask wearing, to quote a deeply misleading study by the Brookings Institution. Yet again, the survey data belie the talking points. Since the start of the pandemic, the United States mask adoption patterns have consistently outperformed such socially responsible nations as Germany, the UK, and the four Nordic countries. Look, the bottom line is there's much more in this article, but he says, The American population has already widely adopted masks to the tune of 80% usage for the last three months, with no sign of dissipating. Insofar as these practices help, they're likely to reduce exposure in the presence of vulnerable persons in certain settings. That much should be acknowledged and encouraged as part of the new focus protection strategy. But masks are not the the big policy step to take next. They're just the one that most of the afflicted regions have already taken. It's a report well worth your time. Check it out. Again, it's in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.